Father God, we need hope to live today. Uh, we need hope to survive. Um, so we ask Lord, that you fill our hearts and our lives with hope this morning as we encounter your word. Um, please fill us with the resurrection power. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if you have anyone in your life uh, you would consider your enemy. I don't mean a public enemy, but a personal enemy. Someone who has deliberately harmed you or stood against you. Someone who steals your life. If you do, then you'll know that having that kind of enemy is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It might easily become the most defining thing about your life. So there's a story in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, in chapter 6, about one of Israel's enemies, the Midianites. All right? So not long after Israel settled in the Promised Land, the Midianites grew very powerful and they came and invaded Israel's lands. And they drove the people away, away from their homes and away from their farms, so the Israelites had to go and camp out in caves in the mountains. All right? Um, and as if that wasn't bad enough, it says in Judges that when these poor homeless Israelites planted even a few crops or a small vegetable patch up in the mountains so they could have some food and feed their children and their animals, the Midianites would come up and steal that too. They would come and take away even the puny produce from their mountain vegetable patches. So Israel was reduced to poverty. And they lived every day of their lives under the shadow of this powerful enemy. Okay? And that to me has always been a stark picture of what it's like to have an enemy, a thief in your life who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. So I want to keep that picture of an enemy in our minds as we focus today on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And especially the part where he writes... The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it would be good to turn there in our Bibles to where he says that. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26. So page 961 of the Black Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. And today we started reading from verse 19 where Paul wrote, If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, so Christianity is a profoundly future-looking faith. We hope for something coming in the future that we do not yet see. And yes, there are plenty of good things to be found in it here and now. It produces healthy people and healthy communities and a powerful interaction with the living God. But Paul says that's not enough. It's not nearly enough. If that's all that our faith has to offer, if it's only a little bit of help in this life, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Because that doesn't solve our biggest problem. It doesn't conquer our greatest enemy. And we'd be like Israel, living under the shadow of the Midianites forever. Because our biggest problem and our greatest enemy, of course, is death. We all know that we ourselves and everyone we love is going to die. And we all wake up every day into that reality and live each day under its shadow. And so any religion or any faith system that's worth following 
has to provide some sort of answer to that great problem. Some solution to the problem of death. And I'm a Christian because Christianity's answer is the best. It's the best by far. Christianity's answer to death is resurrection. And that's not only the most complete and satisfying answer to death that I've ever heard. It's also the only answer that's been backed up with a working prototype. <laughs> so it's been historically demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus, as Taylor showed us very powerfully last Sunday. So look down again now at verse 20. And Paul writes, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul says first that the prototype was a complete success. One man was resurrected. And second, that it's not a unique case, but it can be reproduced in every case. All the dead can now be resurrected. The solution to his death becomes the solution to our death. Christianity's answer to death is resurrection. And Paul clearly enjoys the symmetry that both the original problem and its eventual solution came into the world through a single man. So he says in verse 21, For as by a man came death, so by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So now we know from the frailty of our own bodies that we are indeed going to die. And we now have the diagnosis for that problem. We've been infected with the poison of Adam. The bad news is that this poison is fatal in 100% of cases. But the good news is that we've now discovered the antidote. The antidote is resurrection. And it's also 100% effective. Jesus has conquered death by submitting his own body to death. So the grave opened up its mouth to swallow him, just like it had so many hundreds of thousands of others before him. But as one early church father put it, Jesus gave death an upset stomach. Right? So death couldn't stand to have the author of life in its belly, so it vomited him back up again. And now, death's stomach is permanently upset. It staggers around, moaning and clutching its belly and heaving. It can't hold anyone down anymore. So, along with Jesus, we're all going to be thrown back up again. Everyone who's ever died is going to be resurrected on the last day. Whoever we are, whatever we've done and whatever we've believed. And then, we'll all assemble together for the final judgment and stand before Jesus together. So that last day will be the moment that our enemy is fully and finally defeated. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And if you look ahead to verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about that same future time when he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? On that day, the prophecy of Isaiah 25 will be fulfilled that God will swallow up death forever. So death tried to swallow Jesus, but it couldn't keep him down. And instead, Jesus is going to swallow death. 
because Jesus is the bigger fish. So there's going to be a day when we no longer live under the shadow of the Midianites. Our last greatest enemy will be swallowed up forever. And I want to spend the rest of my time this morning working out some of the implications of that reality for us so that we can start to live into that hope. And I have for us seven ways that we all live under the shadow of death every single day, like seven chains of death. And for each one, I want to show how the antidote of resurrection fixes the problem and sets us free. So here are the seven chains of death. Fear, grief, pain, frustration, humiliation, confusion, and unfulfilled potential. Okay, I'll give you those again. Fear, grief, pain, frustration, humiliation, confusion, and unfulfilled potential. So the first chain of death is fear. I don't think there's anyone alive who isn't at least a little bit afraid of death. We might not fear what comes after it, but we're all afraid of the dying part. And we don't know how or when it's going to happen, but we do know that it's coming for us (coughs) sooner or later. And horror movies usually exploit our deep-seated fear of death. And we spend a lot of time, day after day, living out of that fear, either by plunging into it, by watching those horror movies and riding roller coasters and riding motorcycles and reading tragic news stories, or by trying to distract ourselves from our fear with busyness and with entertainment or with being excessively social. However we choose to handle it, we all work hard to manage our own fear of death, and that takes a lot of energy. And of course, most of us are even more afraid of losing a loved one to death than we are of dying ourselves. Almost every child's greatest fear is the death of a parent. And that fear stays with us as we age, and maybe it just migrates to different people. So how would our lives change if the fear of death was completely removed? What difference would that make in your life? When we are resurrected, our own new bodies will be immortal and imperishable. And neither we nor anyone we love will be able to die again. (coughs) So all our relationships from that moment on will be permanent. And we will live without the lingering fear that death could snatch us at any moment. That chain of fear will be broken. The second chain of death is grief. And this comes out of our daily awareness of all the good things that death has stolen from us, all the happy stories it has cut short, and all the pleasant memories it has poisoned with horror. We feel grief when anything valuable is lost or any dream hoped for is unrealized. That gives us grief. And when death comes, it steals away a person of infinite value and dashes a limitless number of dreams. Thus it flogs us day after day, with grief. But the resurrection promise of God is that I will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more crying, or mourning, or weeping, or pain. And how could God dry every tear unless everything valuable was returned to us, every single tiny thing that death had stolen away, and unless every broken dream was mended and realized. If the dreams aren't mended, there's still grief. And if there's still grief, there's still a tear. But God promises to wipe away 
every tear. And that must mean he mends the dreams as well as restoring life. So if I grieve because my dad didn't live to see my daughter married, then the promise of resurrection is not merely that I get my dad back, but also that I get that dream back in some way known only to God, because God promises that he is going to banish grief. And so the second chain of death is broken. The third chain of death is pain, because death doesn't just happen to us once. It announces itself in a thousand teasers. All our physical pain and suffering comes to us because our bodies are under the sway of death. So every cut and bruise and burn and bite and bad back and broken ankle, every sore throat and sick day, for what percentage of your waking hours would you say you need painkillers? How many useful hours of work or happy hours of rest are taken from you by discomfort, illness or pain? All those hours are stolen away by this thief of death. Like the Midianites stealing even the feeble crops the Israelites grew painstakingly on the mountainside. The enemy is never satisfied. He keeps on taking. Can you even imagine living without pain? Or without taking measures to avoid pain? Or without taking care of somebody else who's in pain? That would mean a radically different kind of life. And after the resurrection, death is destroyed and there's no longer any pain. So it's a radically different kind of life because the third chain of death is broken. The fourth chain of death is frustration. Our work can never be finished. The good that we hope to accomplish in the world can never be accomplished because death cuts us down before the job is done. So this lament lies at the heart of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which has a lot to say about death. And the refrain of that book is, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. In other words, our lives are reduced to meaninglessness by this reality of death. The preacher in Ecclesiastes cries out in frustration, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So because of death, we are all of us profoundly frustrated. We're tricked up in our attempts to make progress. We're cut off at the knees. So for example, it takes about 25 years to train up a doctor from infancy to the art of medicine, right? And he or she might then practice the craft effectively for only about another 40 years, as long as death doesn't claim him or her prematurely in some other way. And how little of the job is done by then? How little of the training used. Imagine instead of that doctor could live for a thousand years. How much more knowledge and skill could he or she acquire in that time? And even a thousand years would be too little. And that's just one example. But it's basically the same for everyone. We are all of us enormously frustrated. But in the resurrection, our bodies work. Our minds work. Our days are not beset with problems. And our years go on eternally. Can we even imagine daily life without the ever-present frustration or what a human can accomplish who comes out from under the tyranny of death? So after the resurrection, the chain of frustration will be broken. The fifth chain of death is humiliation. Death strips us of our dignity, doesn't it? The process of aging and dying is pitifully undignified. Our bodies are gradually stripped 
first of their beauty, then of their strength, and then of their intelligence. And we're reduced in stature. Our senses grow dull. We need help with the most basic tasks. The road to death is painfully inglorious. And we suffer one humiliation after another. One part loses hair and another part sprouts it. One part stiffens and another part sags. One part creaks and another part cracks. And our functions fail one by one, little by little. How undignified it is to bleed and hobble and struggle to the bathroom. How unfit for a person in the image of God. Because we know we'll all face the same thing, we give each other grace and suffer with patience. But can you imagine a life freed from the humiliation of death? Paul says that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So the resurrection life is glorious without a trace of the humiliation of death. And so the fifth chain is broken. The sixth chain of death is confusion. So it would be a small consolation if death at least made some sense. Kind of the least it could do, after everything it takes away. But no, death won't even do that small favour. It does nothing the way we might want it to. Nothing that offers any meaning. And it leaves behind nothing but confusion. So the child of loving parents is taken, while a loveless old tyrant is left. A charity worker dies young while a ruthless dictator reaches old age. The peaceful die in terror and the terrible die in peace. And the one who longs for life dies while the one who longs for death lives. But not always because death writes no stories. Not good stories and not even bad stories. No stories at all. It seizes at random. Or at least its purpose is entirely hidden from us, so that we who look for meaning in all things search the works of death in vain. We cannot help asking why, but that question falls endlessly into the blackness of death without so much as an echo. Here's Ecclesiastes again. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as one who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. The preacher says that it's an evil that death does not discriminate, that it treats the real and infinite differences between people as if they were nothing that it plays no favourites at all and spares no one. So death sheds no light. It leaves behind it only confusion. And so no light will be lost when it is swallowed up forever and great gain when it is replaced by the perfect justice of God. On that day, the chain of confusion will be broken. So those are the first six chains of death. Fear, grief, pain, frustration, humiliation, and confusion. And now finally, the seventh is unfulfilled potential. Because we all die before we're ready. <coughs> well, who could ever be ready for this horrible, ghastly thing? But I mean, we all die long before we've attained to all that we could be. 
So when a child dies in infancy, we rage at the loss, at the unfulfilled potential. But if she dies in a nursing home age 95, is it really so different? In 95 more years, she did a lot more learning. But how much did she learn compared to what her brain was capable of learning? How much did she create compared to what she was capable of creating? How much wisdom did she speak compared to what she was capable of speaking? And how much did she love compared to how much she was capable of loving? So very little, right? Even at 95, so much of her potential remains unfulfilled as it still would at 1,095. We need more time to be the people we are made to be. Our capacity to dream and imagine and desire seems almost infinite. How can we stand to have our reality so limited? That's surely what Ecclesiastes means when it says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. We need eternity. Eternity is the least time that would satisfy us to realize this God-given potential. So it's a good thing that eternity is exactly what we're promised. 1 John 2, verse 25 says, and this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. The resurrection life is eternal because God will swallow up death forever. So we need to realize what a massive pro promise this is. You can't possibly say that this has no relevance in your life. This is a plan to defeat your worst enemy, an enemy that casts every waking hour of every day under its shadow. Don't you want that enemy defeated and that shadow removed? In response to the problem of the Midianites, God sent Gideon to defeat them. And the people of Israel were liberated and returned to their homes and their farms. And would any of those people have said that Gideon had no relevance in their lives? Their entire lives were different because of him. Their whole futures looked different. And so it is with us and Jesus. He's changed everything for us because he's defeated our worst enemy, that tyrant death who keeps us chained and bound and frustrated and humiliated every day. Jesus conquered him. And he's about to swallow him up so he'll never trouble us again. So if the life and work of Jesus seems to you distant and abstract, very far away and very long ago, then remember that he was then and is now at work to defeat the enemy who punishes you every day. He was then and is now and will soon be your saviour from this enemy. So are we living into that hope? Death has done horrible, terrible nightmarish things to us but we can still crow over him as he gets prepared to be Jesus's lunch we can laugh at death as he staggers around clutching his belly and feeling terribly nauseated and gets ready to vomit up every single person he's ever swallowed we can tell him his fear is nothing against the hope of eternal life. And his grief is nothing against the hope of eternal joy. And his humiliation is nothing against our hope of eternal glory. Because our last enemy is doomed. The resurrection of Jesus sends down into our dungeon a gust of clean air laden with the scent of freedom. And by it we can stand and feel our strength return to us. 
and join in the song of triumph, singing, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Amen.